I invite you to turn in God's holy word to Acts 2 and Acts chapter 3 to read a portion of two different episodes, as it were. In Acts 1, Jesus ascends into heaven, tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the pouring out of the Spirit. In Acts 2, the Jews are all gathered at Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast, a yearly celebration, and on the occasion of the Pentecost feast, the Spirit is poured out from heaven with those wonderful signs, a rushing wind and tongues of fire and tongues speaking. And then Peter has to explain all that, and he gets up to preach. And in the midst of his sermon, I like to read Acts 2, verses 22 through 28. Acts 2, at verse 22, the word of the Lord as the apostle Peter preaches in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, Psalm 16, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Then I'd like to move to chapter 3, where sometime later than Acts 2, now Peter and John go up to the temple and they uh, see the layman there. They have no silver or gold to give him, but what they do have is the name of Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, Peter raises him from the, from the ground. He brings healing to his feet. And so the crippled man in verse 8 stands up, enters the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. So this worshiper who is outside the temple is brought into the temple by the name of Jesus. And then I'd like to read at verse 11, Acts 3.11, to the end of the chapter. Verse 11, now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power, godliness, we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. 
Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. God's word. Finally, if you take out the Forms and Prayers book and turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 22, you'll find it on page 223 and 224. The Catechism here expounds now the very last phrases of the Apostles' Creed, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Page 223 now, question 57, asks us, how does the resurrection of the body comfort you? And we confess, not only my, my soul will be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Then turning the page, how does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? And this beautiful answer, even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness. Boys and girls, that means happiness. I'm going to have perfect happiness such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. So we believe and confess. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, as you bring us to your rich word and your glorious truth of salvation through Christ, we pray that we might hear it again with fresh ears, we might believe more deeply, experience greater comfort, and sing your praise more loudly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, what is Christianity? If you had to define that for someone or answer the question, what is Christianity? Is it merely a religion? You know, many people define religion as believing in something unseen. And so if you believe anything that's, that's invisible or anything that's, that's not proven by quote-unquote science, then you are a religious person. Or the government speaks of of faith groups, right? Religious groups. Is that what Christianity is? It's just a belief in something invisible. Or is Christianity a morality? A morality. Many of our neighbors think that, that being a Christian means you do good things. So some of them say, I could never be a Christian. I'm not not good enough. But but you're a Christian, so you go to church and you, you do these things. That's what Christianity is, doing certain things, good things. Or... Or is Christianity an insurance policy? It's 
the ticket to get out of hell. It's an insurance policy, kind of like car insurance. You hope you don't have to use it because you don't want to get hurt in a car wreck. And even if you don't get hurt, you probably won't come out very well with your insurance company in the end anyway. But you have to have insurance, so you have it. Is that what Christianity is? It's your insurance policy, so you don't have to go to hell. What did Jesus teach us this is about Christianity? Christ in the Sermon on the Mount begins his sermon by declaring the blessedness, the happiness of kingdom citizens. Blessed are the. And he's talking about the happiness of people who who know Jesus. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's what Christianity is. Jesus prayed in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. That's eternal life. This is Christianity, to have life. And life is to have fellowship with God. Christianity is the gospel being restored to God, to have fellowship with him, to know him to commune with him, to have perfect blessedness or happiness beneath the shining face of God. That is Christianity. This morning we're called to confess that Jesus Christ has brought us from death to life, real life, eternal life. Let's consider that. First of all, we consider the destroyer of life. Secondly, the author of life. Thirdly, the fullness of life. And fourthly, the choice of life. Now, Peter makes a remarkable statement in Acts chapter 3 when he says to these Jews, you denied the Holy One, the Righteous One. You asked for a murder to be given to you, and you killed the Prince of Life. And so you remember he's referring here to to the Jews when before Pontius Pilate they asked that Barabbas would be given to them, as was the custom, one of the prisoners would be set free. Barabbas will take him. What should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. That was their choice. Chose a murder killed the prince of life. You chose death over life. Death and life, those are contrasted in the Bible, aren't they? If we're going to rejoice this morning in life, we have to think for a moment about death, and death is ugly. But we can't stick our heads in the sand and pretend like death doesn't exist. Death is ultimately, not just that a body stops breathing, but death is separation from God. Death, of course, involves all kinds of separations. A loved one dies, they're separated from us. The body dies, the soul separates from the body. But if you're not in Christ, you are cast out and eternally separated from God. That's death. Now, people don't like to think about death. Many times in our culture, people don't want to speak of it or even consider it. And so I've noticed a lot of times now people don't even have funeral services anymore. We're not going to come together and think about death. Just cremate them, scatter the ashes, and be done with it. Or sometimes now, instead of funeral services, there's celebration of life services. And we as Christians can recognize that it's good after a Christian has lived a life to give thanks to God and praise him for what he's given us through this person. But you can't celebrate a life as if to hide death. Death is an enemy. Death is real. For the believer, 
the physical death is transformed. Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, it's fellowship with Christ. To die is gain. That's true. But death, death in and of itself is loss, it's pain, it's sorrow, and it's worthy of grieving. Other people deal with death by trying to deny life. Deny life. Have you thought about that? People deny death by denying life. If they, if they say there's no such thing as the kind of life we talk about, life with God, there's just a group of cells, there's just some cosmic accident that produced life, we're just highly developed worms, well then death is nothing, right? Our death is no more significant than the death of a worm. So there's nothing to be grieved here. One well-known author writes, I have watched in hospital groups as dying patients worked desperately toward a calm stage of acceptance. Strangely, no one ever talked about heaven in those groups. It seemed embarrassing, somehow cowardly. What convulsion of values can have us holding up the prospect of annihilation as brave and that of blissful eternity as cowardly. But then there's those who think that the answer to death is to bow down to death, to worship death, to be enamored with death, to be able to have some kind of morbid fascination with death. You've seen people who make up themselves and dress themselves who look like they're already dead. It's a strange thing, isn't it? To put on makeup and clothes so that you look like you're dead even while you're alive. We have a culture in love with death. It's interesting that in Satan's kingdom, the solution to death is not to overcome death, but in Satan's kingdom, the solution to death is to befriend death. You asked for a murder to be given to you. You killed the prince of life. You go on the internet and you'll find people praising those who've committed suicide. That was so brave. They're great heroes. Or what of the cult of worship that surrounds Planned Parenthood? As if this is the salvation for women. A group that seeks the destruction of unborn life. We have a culture that loves death. Worships death. But the Bible says death is an enemy. Now, there's hope for the believer in the face of death, but not because death is no big deal. Death tears apart. Death fractures a marriage that has gone on for 50 or 60 years. Death carries away young and old. Death is an ugly intrusion upon God's good creation. Death, ultimate death, is being cut off from the brightness of God's face. This is not some good and natural course of life. This, Romans 5 says... Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Don't let somebody sing about death as some natural cycle of life. Death is the curse. And that should humble us. Stories told of a man who, hearing one of the biblical genealogies read, so-and-so lived so many years and he died. So-and-so lived so many years and he died. His son lived so many years and he died. After this incessant drumbeat of death, he was humbled to cry out to God for mercy. 
The answer to death is not to pretend it doesn't exist. What is the answer to death? It is the author of life. Consider that secondly. The author of life. Peter says you asked for a murder to be granted you and you killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. The word prince could also be translated author or originator. Might be the better translation here. That Christ is the author of life. He's obtained life for us. He is the the great pioneer who has gone before us and opened the way to life. The requirement of God's justice was death. God said the soul that sins must die. The wages of sin is death. You and I, as surely as we see here this morning, deserved death. Eternal death. But the incomprehensible love of God that he gave his only begotten to come from heaven to a sin-cursed earth, to take a human body, a human soul, to be one with us in the flesh, so that he could step into our stead, representing us, and suffer our death and the curse upon us. He was cut off. He experienced the separation. He was cursed. He was made to be sin. He was utterly desolate, hanging between heaven and earth. He bore the wrath of God. You can't look at the cross and say, you know, death's not a big deal. When you look at the cross, you say, death was horrible. But Christ suffered it all for me. The misery, the hellish agony, the darkness, the eternal darkness, the condemnation. And yet Christ did all of that, not hopeless. But Hebrews 12 says that we should look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That's a spectacular statement that Christ, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Now, I wanted to read that Acts 2 passage where Peter quotes Psalm 16 because it's so marvelous that Peter, and you see what Peter's doing. Peter's trying to say, look at what I'm telling you about Jesus being raised from the dead. This isn't something I made up. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. But you'll notice that when Peter quotes Psalm 16 to prove that Christ's resurrection from the dead was prophesied, he doesn't stop after verse 27. Verse 27, he gets to the point where David had said, you will not leave my soul in Hades, death, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And then he's going to go on to say, hey, look at." David's tomb is right here in Jerusalem. David is dead. He has been he has been decaying for centuries. Okay, so David wasn't talking about himself in Psalm 16, first of all. He was talking about one who would not see corruption, and that's Jesus. That's Peter's point. But Peter doesn't stop there with a quote. He gives verse 28. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And so that also applies to Jesus. That Christ went to the cross for the joy set before him. Christ went to the cross knowing that having accomplished the work, he'd be raised up to eternal blessedness. Now you say, well, he's the eternal son of God. He's always had eternal blessedness. He has always been the son eternally basking in the love of the Father who's loved him eternally in the communion of the Spirit. Yes. But now he goes to heaven as the God-man, as the Christ. And he enters heaven in our humanity 
saying to God, you will make me full of joy in your presence. Jesus Christ entered into heaven at his ascension to receive the brightest smiles of his Father's face. He entered into the glories and the joys, the pleasures at God's right hand. And he did it for us. For us. Catechism has some wonderful words in there about us. Well, as we already sang, soaring to heaven, following Christ our exalted head. The Catechism also speaks of of our soul immediately after this life being taken to Christ its head. And so the whole emphasis here is on the union between Christ and his people. Think about that this morning, this bond between you and Jesus, how real that bond is. Have you ever stopped in reading the New Testament epistles to to look at the prepositions? Uh, One frequently used is the word in. We are in Christ. Over and over you read this, that we are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ And it's making the point that we are bound in Jesus. We are connected to him. We are united to Christ. There's different kinds of bonds and unions, right? There's financial unions of a contract. There's familial bonds. Marriages are are glorious bonds. I remember sitting with a widow in her uh, retirement sitter in her apartment, and she points to the door. Her husband's been gone for years, and she said, every time that door opens, I expect him to come walking through it. It's been years, years, and yet 60 years of marriage. And now every time the door opens, she thinks he's going to come walking through. But the bond we have with Jesus is far greater than that. And the more that we think on our bond with Christ, that we're united to him, the more comfortable we'll be, the more joyful we'll be, the more hopeful we'll be. Psalm 16 is Christ's psalm. But because we are in Christ Jesus, Psalm 16 is our psalm. He's not going to leave our bodies to decay. And he's going to cause us to know the fullness of joy in his presence. Our union with Christ means eternal communion with God. We will see pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. Do you understand that? have to think on this union with Christ. We make far too little of our union with Christ. James Boyce, the the late doctor James Boyce, in his commentary on Psalm 16, he recounts an illustration, a story from mountain climbers in the Alps climbing the Matterhorn. There were four climbers, two guides and two tourists, two other climbers who were tourists. And so they're climbing the, the most difficult face of the Matterhorn, and they're all roped together as climbers often do. So there was a, a guide at the, the top, and then tied to him behind him was one of the tourists, and then tied beneath him was the next guide, and then tied beneath him, beneath him was the, the next tourist. And as they were climbing, the tourist at the end of the rope slipped, and he went sliding off the edge. And the rope, therefore, yanked the guide above him, and he went sliding off the edge. And then the rope yanked the guide, uh, the tourist above him, and he went sliding off the edge. But... The guide at the top, as soon as he recognized what was happening, drove his pickaxe into the ice and he held on for dear life and he held firm. So there are three men dangling over the edge and the man at the top of the rope holding them all on and the three men below regained their footing. They lived, they went on. 
And Dr. Boyce points out what an illustration that is of what happened to us. We were tied into the first Adam. And when he went over the edge, he pulled each of us behind him. And if it was all just humans in a row tied in, we would all be gathered to hell, to the great abyss. But we're tied into another, the great guide, our Lord Jesus, the author of life, the prince of life, who is not only held fast, but he has pulled us all from the pit all the way to the glory of heaven. We are tied in to Jesus. And therefore, we have thirdly this morning the fullness of life. The fullness of life. Think about that. Death is not the last word for the Christian because death was not the last word for Jesus. And so Peter says over and over, God raised him from the dead. You killed him. God raised him. You killed him. God raised him. That was God's plan and God has done it. Death could not hold him because he paid for our sins. And where there is no sin, death has no power. But now if Christ is the head of the church and we are the body, where the head goes, the body follows. If the head has been raised, you will be raised from the dead. Christ the firstfruits and then those who are his follow after him. If Christ has entered the pleasures forevermore at God's right hand, then you will too. You're tied in together with him. So the Catechism in question 57 says, how does the resurrection of the body, how does that teaching comfort you? Well, not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh raised by the power of Christ will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Wonderful union between us and Jesus. One reason we think too lightly of heaven and the resurrection of the body is because we think too lightly of the reality that Christ suffered death and was raised and entered glory. Our assurance will be directly proportionate to the attention we give both to the reality of Christ's victory and the reality of our union with Christ, that we are in Christ. Because if we're united to Christ the head, we can't be lost. If we're tied into Jesus, we cannot fall into the abyss. At the moment you breathe your last breath on earth, you cannot slip away to hell. You are tied into Christ. And the only way you can end up in hell is if Christ, in whom you are tied in, slips out of heaven and himself goes to hell. And that's never going to happen. Our bodies cannot be forgotten in the grave either. You can burn them up, you can smash them up, you can bury them very deep in the ground, you can bury them at sea, but even our bodies remain united to Christ, and they will be raised from the dead, glorious. The eternal life that Christ has secured for us is true life. If true death is separation from God, then true life is fellowship with God. So right now we have fellowship. Right now we have fellowship. The Catechism says that even as I already now, I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. 
This is the wonder of our worship this morning. What's going on here? We already now have communion with God. In the singing of his praise and the hearing of his word, the partaking of communion, we are fellowshipping with the living God. And then upon death, do we lose that? No, Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We have more immediate communion with God. Our souls are caught up to glory. We are summoned to heaven. And those who have died in the Lord, our loved ones, are not in purgatory. They are not experiencing soul sleep. They are enjoying conscious, conscious communion with the Lord. Can't count the number of times that elderly Christians on their deathbeds have said to me, I can't wait to see Jesus. Older saints growing old, I'm so ready to go home. These are extraordinary confessions. I commune with the Lord. I love him. I look for him. I can't wait to see his face. Well, death is an enemy. And we do experience discomfort at the thought of our own death. Of course, death is unnatural. That our body and soul should be separated. But even in our dying, we're ministered to by the great shepherd who reminds us that where I am, you will be. I will not leave you or forsake you. I will bring you into my Father's presence. So the believer united to Christ can have that bold confidence to say, to be absent from the body will be to be present with my Lord. Even though the unbeliever may say, I have no idea what's after this life. I don't think there is anything after this life. Or, I don't know, I hope I go to heaven. I don't know. The Christian says confidently, I'm tied into the Lord Jesus. Where he is, I will follow. Where the head is, the body will be. I'm united to Christ and he can't be without me. I can no sooner miss out on heaven than Christ can be cast into hell. And yet that's not all. Not just life now, not just greater fellowship at the moment of death, but then the greatest of fellowship when Christ returns and our bodies are raised from the dead. And then glorified body and glorified soul, the whole human now remade in a remade creation with no enemies, no sin, no consequences of sin, no shame, no hunger, no nakedness, no regret, now in perfect blessedness to praise God eternally. Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness, perfect happiness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. The Queen of Sheba visited Solomon's kingdom, and at the end of her tour, at the end of her interview with King Solomon, she said, wow, the half had not been told me. Glorious, glorious. And that's what we're going to say all of our years in heaven and the new creation. The half had not been told me. The Bible staggered trying to come up with with words we could understand to communicate to us the glories of being in the presence of God. In my dull heart, I could not understand it. I have the greatest inheritance. Psalm 16 uses that language of inheritance. That's why it's so beautiful. Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance. 
The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. The Israelites each got a portion of land, but the Levites had no land portion, for the Lord was their inheritance. But really what's true of them is true of all God's people. God is our great reward. God is our inheritance. God will give himself to us all of grace because of the saving work of the Lord Jesus. And without sin, without enemies, without temptation, fully remade and refit to stand in the presence of God, we will glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we're looking forward to, to gaze upon the Lord, to live with the Lord. Are you looking forward to that this morning? What is Christianity to you? What is Christianity to you? Is it a religion? Is it a morality code? Is it some insurance policy tucked away in your back pocket you never think about? Christianity is fellowship with the living God through Jesus Christ. It's to have your sins forgiven. It's to have the curse removed that you might know God. And so we're to learn to say more and more with Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh, they fail, but, but Lord, you are my portion forever. We are to be a heavenly-minded people. It doesn't mean that we flee to the monastery and we run from the earth. That was a, a misunderstanding to think that being spiritually minded, to seek communion with God means we have to give up physical matter. It's not the case. God made the world. But we are to fellowship with God in this world until he calls us home to greater glory. We are to hunger for God. First John 3 Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, we now are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. The highest happiness of the Christian life is to see the face of God. It's to... It's to behold the countenance of the Lord. That is to, that is to say it's to, it's to bask in the smile, the loving smile and fellowship with the living God who made you for himself and redeemed you for himself. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure, John says. So then, if that's the glorious gospel, then the choice is before all those who hear it. Think of that finally this morning, the choice of life. In the book of Deuteronomy, as the Israelites stood there on the banks of the Jordan, as it were, preparing to cross over the Jordan into the land of promise, Moses issued this profound command, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, 
blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. Well, later on, the greater than Moses comes Jesus, who actually secures life. And then as the Spirit's poured out from heaven, Peter now stands up and he says what Moses says, will you choose life? You made a bad choice. You killed the prince of life and you chose for a murderer, but you did it in ignorance. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Brothers and sisters, not everyone has eternal life. There are many who slide into the great abyss of hell. The only ones who have eternal life, who have eternal heaven, who have eternal smiles from God, are those united to Christ. And the only way of being united to Christ is by faith and repentance. That is by a faith that brings repentance. Peter tells them, you killed the author of life. But repent so your sins may be blotted out and you may have life, the Spirit of God. The Christian life is a repentant life. Where I've put an idol in my heart and trusted in something other than God, I have to confess it and turn from it. Where I've where I've worshipped my own pleasure instead of being obedient to God's word, I have to grieve that and turn from it. Where I have disobeyed my parents and dishonored them, I have to say before God, forgive me. Where I have failed to love my neighbor, put myself first, I must repent. I must say, as Psalm 16 says, Lord, apart from you I have no good. No goodness apart from you. You are the only good thing. Grant me yourself. Turn me from myself. And the great hope, Peter told them, Acts 3, verse 26. Peter preached to these Jews, saying to you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Jesus has come to bless us with repentance, to bless us with faith, to bless us with union with him. And he's training us, isn't he, to hate death and to love life, to hunger for God, to say my great blessedness would be to see the face of God, which I see now in part in the face of Jesus, and which I will see fully one day. Richard Sibbs was a Puritan, and one of his contemporaries, having read one of Sibbs' books, he inscribed in the front of his copy this little tribute. Of this blessed man, let this just praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. That's true of every Christian, isn't it? Because Christianity is not an insurance policy to be pulled out on the last day. Christianity is to know the true and living God. And to have his spirit, the spirit of heaven living in us. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then heaven is in you. Before you are in heaven. Rejoice this morning.
that you have communion with Christ. And that's what the Lord's Supper is about. As we eat and drink, Christ is saying, it's this real that you are tied into me. As real as this bread, as real as this wine, so really has your head ascended and gone before you. And so surely will you, united to him, be where he is. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the pure gospel of our Lord Jesus, the one who bore our hell that we could be raised to his heaven. Grant us faith in him. Give us that union and bond with Christ. Cultivate it. Make us a heavenly-minded people that we having this hope might be purified. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.